and deliver. Welcome to the ESG Activists, a Team Spirit podcast series in which we hear from those bridging the ESG delivery gap. With big commitments no longer enough, in each episode, we talk with an ESG game changer from a variety of asset classes to reveal how they are delivering across the E, the S and the G in this, the decisive decade. Hello, I'm Fiona Cooper, Chief Marketing Officer at Team Spirit. And in this ESG Activist podcast, I'm delighted to be talking with Tom Matthews, Sustainable Investment Senior Manager at J.O. Hambro Capital Management. Welcome, Tom. Hi, Fiona. Pleasure. Pleasure to be here. Thank you for inviting me. Oh, great to have you. Um, as a way of a short introduction to you and to J.O. Hambro uh, before we start, Tom is Senior Manager in the Sustainable Investments Team at J.O. Hambro Capital Management. He co-founded this team in January of this year and prior to this spent eight years as a Senior Analyst for the J.O. Hambro's UK Dynamic Fund, a £2 billion asset under management strategy focused on investing in strategic change. And before joining J.O. Hambro, Tom worked in equity sales for Espirito Santo Investment Bank and in the Special Situations Group, part of corporate finance for EY. Tom holds an MA in Economics and Management from Oxford University, a postgraduate certificate in Sustainable Leadership from the University of Cambridge, and is Association of Chartered Certified Accountants qualified. He also holds the Investment Management Certificate. And for those who aren't too familiar with J.O. Hambro Capital Management, they're an active investment management company with offices in London, Singapore, New York and Boston, and aiming to be the best, not the biggest, because when funds become too big, their performance can suffer from a lack of nimbleness that prevents investment in the best. They manage currently £28.9 billion of assets across a range of global and regional equity strategies and multi-asset strategy. So let's start. Um, The first question is around how momentum has increasingly um, started to get behind stakeholder capitalism. And some institutional investors are arguing that ESG factors are more important than traditional financial metrics when making long-term investment decisions. Would you agree? It's very in vogue, isn't it? The the sort of throwing out the old and and bringing in the new. I was actually walking through Covent Garden the other day thinking, isn't it it amazing that they, up until not that long ago, they were thinking of knocking this down and bringing in the new. And I think there's a bit of that going on at the moment with regards to ESG metrics. Um, We're talking about investment decisions here and investment decisions are um, what, what is your future return versus your present day price. So it's very difficult to imagine that traditional metrics like um, the amount of financial gearing that goes into that investment, uh, prospective gross margins, the cash generation are not going to be still very important um, elements <laughs> or integral elements when we think about um, that that investment. Having said that, it's very, very clear that we need to also always be thinking about the other metrics that need to go into it, environmental metrics, social and, and governance factors, as, as, as you ask. And I th- but I think that's always been the case. Um, you know, no company has ever operated in a vacuum. With finance's obsession with throwing out the the old and bringing in the new is really, I guess, just a, a waking up and awakening um, that it needs to think beyond maybe the traditional metrics, but not at, at the expense of them in, in, in many cases. And I think the one thing I would say is that it's become increasingly apparent that when you think about it, it even more increasingly. Um, as we go up against the sort of planetary boundaries, uh, and, and that's leading to inc- rising levels of volatility and uncertainty. So when we think about that, that long-termism, that long-term investment, as you, as you said, those tail risks that maybe everyone used to not think about, that the tails are fatter, they're fatter than they ever were before, because those risks are layering on top of each other. 
Um, and, and therefore, we do need to think about those those E, S and G risks uh, more than maybe others had cared to in the past. But any good investor was already thinking like that. He was already thinking holistically about his investment. And I think that's the important thing to, to recognise here is um, that you've got to think holistically about the E and the S and the G and the financial metrics. And I guess that is my one sort of my one pet hate about the, the term ESG is it, it's very siloed, isn't it? In the, in the way that people talk about it, when actually it's, it's going to be part of a bigger picture. Um, if we think about sustainability, decarbonisation of businesses and their supply chains has become core now to the UK achieving their sort of net zero target by 2050. I'm just wondering how J.O. Hamburg go about understanding the sort of the impact and identifying the targets that you wish companies to meet and by when in order to get there. Yes, um, I guess the first thing to recognise at Joe Hambro is we have no house view or prescribed approach um, to to anything. It, um, we very much um, believe in a plurality of views, um, a diverse set of views, because this leads to internal challenge and it removes blind spots. And that's a very important part of any of any um, healthy system is to have that diversity. Um, but it's very clear that there is a consensus emerging, especially around. Um, carbon and, and, and net zero um, with regards to, to, to what a company should and, and shouldn't do. Um, the, the first thing that's driving that is regulation. Um, so we've got the EU taxonomy, the SFDR um, coming in as well with the EU. Um, and as part of that, uh, we've got rolling out um, as of August is um, the principal adverse impact indicators of which there are 14 mandatory and about a third of those are actually focused on on carbon so you've got scope one scope two scope three uh, ghg emissions you've got carbon intensity you've got percentage of the of the company that is involved in fossil fuels um but the important thing to recognize with all of this data is it's only a snapshot in time in fact it's, it's very backward looking so we use um ISS as, as the main uh, input for most of our data for our proxy data, but we also have MSCI, we also have Sustainalytics, but we use that for, for the for, we use ISS for the PAIs, and it's um, the ISS only updates its data uh, once once every twelve months. So if you think about the reporting cycle of a lot of data by companies, it, it means that the data being reported could be one and a half, nearly two years old in in, in some circumstances. And yet, when we go back to when we're thinking about the investments that we're making, um, our fund managers are predominantly investing in equities, so future returns, future commitments. Um, that snapshot in time is, is 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 meaningless, really. We're not we're not investing for past returns; it's always the future. So, increasingly, our fund managers uh, and us are, are focused on forward-looking indicators. So, that might be uh, joining initiatives like the CDP, so Carbon Disclosure Program. Um, uh, which really is just around the disclosure levels, but it is disclosure around where your targets are, where your targets are relative, relative to being Paris aligned. And of course, uh, the SPTI or Science Based Targets Initiative, which is probably the, the, the top one that we uh, try and get our companies to join up to um, because it gives, um, it gives some credibility to those targets, um, to, to them actually being achieved and, and keeping temperatures, global temperatures within 1.5 degree uh, increases. However, it's, it's not as simple as just joining an initiative. So, for instance, um, if you don't join the initiative, you can still have a science-based target. So um, that doesn't mean that you have to join. And also, some industries have been told that they can't join the SPTI. So oil and gas, it was recently an announced uh, that that was the case. And, and that's not because 
um, the SPTR is against oil and gas, but just it's too complex. In fact, we were talking to P BP about this only the other day, and they outlined to us that it's very rigid the way that SPTI goes about its assessments. It's is one is one trajectory for for one type of fuel. Um, so should an oil and gas company be trying to reduce its carbon as quickly as a tech company, and should uh, an oil and gas company in India be trying to reduce its emissions at the same speed as an oil and gas company in Europe or the UK. It doesn't really build that into the factor, and yet we can't just turn oil and gas off like that, and certainly not in parts of parts of India or, or, or many parts of the emerging world. And that's where the complexity comes in. So we have to go beyond that as well. And that's where a true investor will be thinking of all of these, a proper investor will be thinking holistically about all of these, but also engaging with the company. And the important thing that we always, always strive to look at is the governance around all of it. Where is the ownership of that commitment? Um, how incentivized are management to even make that commitment? Because we're talking about commitments in the future here. So what's their alignment to their pay? And, and what level of oversight is there? Is the CEO on the board of the Sustainability Committee? Or does the Sustainability Committee just report in to head of HR, which is something that we have seen as well? These are all the considerations that we need to think about. And a lot of this you can't actually get from data at all. You need to do it through engaging with the company. Yeah, interesting that the governance is so important and it is that human insight in terms of looking beyond the data is so critical. <laughs> I think I'd quite like to explore a little bit more about that um, future looking type of, of data that is now available and particularly when we're looking at reporting and sort of what that zone of tolerance should be for any business. So one of the criticisms of the ESG commitments that have been um, prolific over the last year in particular um, is that without any measurement and audit they really have got no teeth. So I suppose this is it really coming to the crunch in terms of greenwashing that we actually have to start to put metrics behind the journey. So I'm interested if you could explore a little bit more as to what reporting metrics and indices are you focusing on um, and how do you feel that's evolving? How do you get beyond that snapshot in time or one snapshot in time, which, as you just said, could easily be a year out of date? Yeah, no, it's 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 really challenging, to be honest. And I, I totally agree um, with... with um, I guess that's sort of how can you commit to something if you don't know what you're even counting um, problem. But I guess there's no alternative really, or rarely an alternative, to not commit would be an even worse uh, indication of your intent. So I guess it's, um, and our industry's a case in point, the number of uh, fund management companies that signed up to net zero, you wonder, do they even have the data to, to know how to do that? Or, or do they even have the understanding to know what net zero looks like when we get there? Um, but everyone's got to join it. It's sort of, um, the neo-institutionalism, I believe is the phrase, for, for, for joining up to things because everyone else is. And it detracts really from the challenge that we need to try and to try and solve for, um, and and that is progress. Um, and I think that's the thing that we're really keen to to bring to life is any, anyone can join an initiative, anyone can make a commitment, but those that are genuine about it go that step further. So um, they actually, you know, the the data is incomplete. Uh, it's really incomplete. So I mentioned the, the PAIs, the Principal Adverse Indicators. There are 14 mandatory ones out there. Um, there's a, over 30 non-mandatory, and you have to select two as, as sort of as 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 a, as a first first draft, first step. And actually, the the completeness of the data of those non-mandatories is 
near unusable at this stage but it's a first step and you know and it's that and that's the same with the EU regulation is it's 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 definitely moving the conversation forward it's encouraging companies to disclose so they have the EU taxonomy for instance but only one company actually currently discloses against that information but that will that will change in time so for us it's um we actually get often often asked by by companies what what metrics would you like us to 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 disclose and our answer back to them is, you tell us. Because if you're genuine about the impact that you want to make, then you must be genuine about the way you're recording, uh, whether you're having an impact. And therefore, tell us what that metric is and tell us why you're using it and tell us about the importance of it. And I guess that's the problem with data and the financial industry in particular is to report a metric and then not beat it or, or not improve it is... Uh, is, is a very dangerous thing to do. It's something people don't want to sign up to. But that's the that's the nature of the beast. Is we're all learning. We're all on a journey. And if it's not the right metric, and and you've got a very good reason why you switch it out, then just just just, just tell us. And we're all on that learning t- together. So, sorry, I haven't really given you the, the answer on the metrics. But it's got to be all of it. It's got to you know we we pipe in all information to to our fund managers. As I said, there's MSCI, there's ISS, there's Sustainalytics, uh, there's all the PAI information all provided by ISS. But You've got to go back to the source documents. Um, you know, it's got to be going back to what does the company report in the first instance. We don't use we we have all the the third party ratings, but they're near useless because you need to be a specialist in their methodology to understand how they've calculated it. So then you go back to the source documents, and and then and then really that's only going to get you half the picture. As you said, that's backward looking inherently. So you've got to you've got to talk to the companies. You've got to understand. What what are they trying to achieve? How, how purpose driven are they? Um, and how, what levels of empowerment are there across the organisation to achieve these things? That's the only way you can really get a feel for the direction of travel, the direction of change. So I'm just wondering if governance is important. How important is inclusion and in diversity metrics for you? And and what do you look for? What are the signifiers as far as you're concerned that this company is is doing it well? Diversity, I think, goes much, much beyond the sort of what the, the D, E and I maybe makes you think. When we look at it, we, we think about, well, how representative is that business of its wider stakeholders? And does it engage with its wider stakeholders? Does it even know who its wider stakeholders are? And how does it actually think about that representation within its business? How does it bring in those diverse views and challenge at the status quo? How does it evolve around that? How are staff empowered and given the autonomy to actually create decisions? Oh, sorry, follow their own decisions and challenge uh, the status quo as well. What level of training do they get? Those are all the sorts of things that we think about. That makes a healthy organisation. So DE&I is always important and it comes has, goes through different phases of what it's called. But I think just that diversity of thought is the key part of it. Uh, and then on top of that, there's obvious rebalancings of, of, in society that we have to do to, 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 to enable that. Um, but yeah, it's very important. And uh, to, to be honest, once again, the metrics, it's actually things, it's probably more the outputs that are better to see. So what's the level of staff turnover? Um what what is the level of uh, internal promotion? What's the level of training? I think those are often better than the the inputs because the inputs don't always give you what the output will be. The outputs will tell you that something's gone wrong, but the inputs, I guess, will hopefully 
tell you that something could go wrong if, if it is too out of kilter but it's just it's it's very complex picture so you always have to get down into the weeds and engage with the company and understand that and especially around things like uh, autonomy autonomy of the, w- the workforce agile working you're not going to be able to get that as any any, any headline metric <laughs> Um, thank you. The final question for now really is very much about your sort of personal commitment. Um, so our series is called Stand and Deliver uh, in terms of the title of the podcast. So if you were to be faced with a highwayman demanding demanding your money or your life, um, as a holistic ESG activist, what sort of personal commitment or campaign for change is so core to you that you would, you would never give it up? Well, one quote that always sticks in my mind is, um, the man who moves a mountain begins by carrying away small stones. Um, or, or as Tesco puts it, every every little helps, which is probably a less pretentious way of putting it. Um, oh, actually, there's one there's one thing that always stuck with me with um, what, that one of my tutors said to me at Cambridge, and he said that he's always he's always guided by where he can make the most impact, and, and I found it a really liberating ideal or idea, um, because we're we're always faced by by multiple choices um, and at the same time we can often feel very overwhelmed by the enormity of some of the challenges the world faces and, and how small we are in, in, in that sort of global system um, but actually if you just focus on your impact your influence um, and and how you can improve that then it, then it gives you a very clear pu- purpose and it enables you to feel quite strong in every decision you make so I guess uh, in a slightly sort of roundabout way of answering your question I feel like the thing that I'd always want to, I could never change was my desire to keep challenging the status quo, um, to never give up or, or take no no for an answer and always be, I guess, guided by where I believe I can make the greatest impact. Um, it's that clarity of, of purpose that I believe that I, 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 oh, I know I just would never want to give up. Brilliant. It starts with small stones. I like that. Indeed. Um, Listen, thank you so much, Tom. It's been fascinating talking with you um, today uh, and really insightful to hear how you personally, but also J.O. Hamburg are going about um, making that uh, systemic change that we hope to to see more others um, or others start to follow. Um, Thank you so much for taking part in this series and wishing you continued success. Thank you, Fiona. And thanks again for inviting me. With thanks to all of our ESG activist podcasters for sharing the detail on how they are delivering against their ESG commitments and by virtue of pushing themselves are challenging the rest of the FS industry to be held to higher standards. If you'd like to understand more about creating credible ESG communications, please visit our website teamspirit.co.uk or if you'd like to talk, contact us at hello at teamspirit